<clears throat> so here we are, day three of Sashin. And so our theme of this retreat, so to speak, continues, which is continuous practice through the four postures. A reminder of the four postures that the Buddha talked about, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. And the first of which Roshi James talked about yesterday. And as I was thinking about this word posture, of course, on a surface level, we can think about it as a bodily thing and how important that is in our practice, of course. But there is this other way of understanding posture. That is, it's our attitude, right? How we deal with something, our outlook. And when we think of sitting in this manner, what comes up for me is that sitting communicates an attitude of patience or forbearance, right? Which we all by now have a lot of experience with just in this retreat. To sit like a mountain, as we say, is to sit and let the, let the weather come and go. And so as we turn to the second of these four postures of standing, we can think of it as an attitude of standing up to something or standing for something. <clears throat> as practitioners, we all come here with aspirations, right? Having cultivated a certain degree of bodhicitta, this will to awaken for ourselves as well as others. And yet we are constantly confronted by all those forces that get in the way of that aspiration. For each one of us, these forces might be different. In my own practice, um, there were times where self-doubt was incredibly strong, a feeling of lack and at other times, it was my own lack of effort, my own laziness. Mostly, it's, it's, been a, it's been a healthy mix of what the Buddha called the five hindrances. Restlessness, doubt, torpor, hatred, and desire. And of course, within each of those, there's all the myriad ways that those manifest within each of us, right? There's, there's doubt, but then there is our own particular strain of doubt that is bound up with our own karma, our own conditioning. And so we gain experience with practice. We begin to see all of the habitual patterns that block our efforts, and so the beginning stages of practice can really be challenging. We're seeing so much about ourselves. I remember hearing a teacher say that after one of her early Sashins coming out of Sashin with the feeling that she really didn't like herself at all, and she saw how vain she was, and it made her sick to her stomach. Right? It can be painful to see ourselves so clearly. And yet, we have to see these things to do something about them. 
And yet seeing our patterns, our foibles, our shortcomings is only so useful. I know a lot of people who have been to many years of therapy. They know their patterns. They know the family origins of those patterns. They know, you know, really so much. And that becomes its own problem. Because at some point, being mindful of our issues stops being useful. In fact, sometimes doing work like therapy or even some forms of practice can become self-defeating. They can be just more ways to examine and torture ourselves, thinking about ourselves. Everyone reaches a point in their practice where they have to take that mindfulness and kick it, you know, into another gear, which usually entails standing up to those patterns that we've come to see, facing the truth that is up to us. No one can practice for us, and no one will change for us. And this truth can be difficult to face. But really, why else are we here? The word truth is an interesting word. One of its origins is linked to this word dru, meaning the steadfast like a tree. The old English word triau, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, came to represent the uprightness of an oak or the dependability of an orchard. In a similar fashion, our modern word, true, has come to mean something that we can depend on, something that stands the test of time, and something that is honorable. And further still, that word, true, to a carpenter, of course, means straight. You true a board to make it straight. And when you're building, say, a house, you have to use straight boards And in Zen practice, we're interested in getting to what's true. It isn't a truth based on philosophy or morality, but there is something nonetheless. In Zen, that interest is often put in the form of a question. Of course, we have the Mu koan. A monk, in all earnestness, asked Master Joshin, Does a dog have Buddha nature? All earnestness means he wasn't, he wasn't just asking. He wasn't playing. He was interested in getting to the truth of the matter. But over time, monks... Um, Practitioners of all kinds began to codify this question. The most common way it's asked in Zen, as you hear and read, is what is the meaning of bodhidharmas coming from the West? And this saying is one that we come across quite often in the koans and has become a roundabout way of asking, what is the deepest 
truth. Two, two weeks ago here in the Zendo, we commemorated the death day of Bodhidharma, which traditionally is held on October 5th each year. And as I mentioned in the Taisho on that day, a large part of what makes Bodhidharma so important right, is that he represents this demarcation point in the development of Zen in China. He's most well known for his encounter with Emperor Wu and with his sitting afterwards in a cave for nine years. It was a shift, right, in the practice of Buddhism from being focused on ritual or study to real practice, which of course means facing the truth of ourself. This is what practice is about. Both the relative truths and the timeless. The relative truth is that many of us have spent a long time ignoring, covering up who we really are. Many times that is it's because we believe on some level that who we are is unacceptable. I can't tell you how many times I've heard some version of the fear that people have that they will be rejected. And so we learn to reject ourselves preemptively. Right? Preemptively. And so in that process, a facade is created. An emotional wall is erected. And we remain comfortably behind that wall. Maybe actually not so comfortably behind that wall. From a Buddhist point of view, of course, this reinforces this sense of separation that we have. In many cases, after a lifetime of creating this facade, it's almost impossible to tell what the real truth of who we are really is. Because, we, you know, we've become so identified with our defense patterns. What we take to be us. And I don't mean here to psychologize the practice. But the ways we intellectualize, ruminate, um, use humor to cover over. Sometimes we minimize or, or the exact opposite, blow out of proportion, we check out, we give up. These defensive patterns, I've found, are the bulk, actually, of what make up who we take ourselves to be. Right? How many times do we say things like, that's just the way I am? Of course, this isn't the case, but it's how we've learned to relate. And so as those patterns are worked with and shed, something else emerges. We become less rigid, more fluid, less reactive, and more available to others. In my own in my own practice, it was only after about a year of intensive therapy that I learned to let go.
go of these ways of relating. And only then was I able to actually be present enough without anxiety to really dig into and see into Mu. And I've seen that with others as well. Through Sishin and and other forms of this kind of deep self-work, people begin to let go more and more of who they thought they were, who they present themselves as. And in doing so, they find more freedom, more joy, more patience, more, more love. Zen is a freedom from the self, not a freedom of the self. Of course, not everyone needs therapy. This isn't the point. I don't want people to misunderstand. I was a, you could say, a particularly hard case. I didn't, of course, realize how invested I was in seeking the approval of others, including my Zen teacher. That there was no way I could give rise to genuine bodhicitta until I had let go of that need to please and to get approval. To put it in Zen terms, there was no way I could see things as they were, the truth of things, until I was ready to let go of that preoccupation with myself, what others thought of me. And this is the case for all of us here. Each one of us has our own karma and therefore timeline. But we are also not simply, we're not victims of our own karma. We can turn over and over again. We can return to the practice. Once we are ready to do so, we can stand up to the ways that we habitually fall into self-loathing or self-clinging, being intolerant of ourselves or others, distracted, falling into daydreaming and regretting. And our one tool, our one method, is this breath, this mo. When we return to that, we are standing up to meet this moment. And to stand up doesn't need to be a forceful thing. I think of the Buddha who were told when he himself was faced with doubt, he simply touched the earth and said, as the earth, as my witness, I am worthy. But it's also important to keep in mind that while we do have a certain amount of control over how we use our minds, like choosing to return to this breath, we, we really can't force it. I feel that learning this balance between how we can steer our practice and how we can't is one of the most important aspects of this path. It reminds me of, of course, the famous interaction between Joshu and his own teacher, Nansen. 
when Joshu asked him, What is the way? Nansen replied, Ordinary mind is the way. Of course, this means that inherently there's nothing special, nothing outside of ourselves, nothing extraordinary that we need to attain. But to Joshu, he asked again, he said, should I direct myself toward it? And to that nonsense said, if you go towards it, you go away from it. This again is the area, the sweet spot, so to speak, that you know each one of us has to find. If we, if we push too hard, then of course the practice becomes just another extension of ourself. And yet if we don't make an effort, then we become, as many masters call, dead and void, lifeless. This all becomes resolved when we become absorbed in the practice itself. Just move, just the breath. And when that happens, there is no thought about effort or no effort. And so what is it to stand up? An old case comes to mind. A monk, in all earnestness, asked, What is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? And Joshu said, The oak tree in the garden. When I was in China a number of years ago, we stayed at Bailinsa, which is Joshu's temple. And um, the only original structure that was there was the Tang era. I believe it was Tang era stupa that was dedicated to Joshu, that was built as a tribute to Joshu after he died. And I remember as a group, we started to do kinhin around that stupa and began chanting the Kanzeon chant. And I remember the power that I felt coming from that tall stupa that had stood there for more than a thousand years, rooted like that giant oak tree in the garden. And then a few weeks ago, <clears throat> while I was in Japan, standing at a heiji, looking up at those giant cedar trees, which were hundreds of years old, wondering how much they had witnessed over the centuries, the comings, of course, the goings, and the building and rebuilding, and feel the same way sitting here in the woods, the giant oak trees behind our cabin, their timeless presence, unwavering, unmoving. As the seasons pass, it's hard to believe that it's been seven years in these woods, and yet really that's nothing. Those trees witnessing all the coming and going here at the center and all that was here before that. And even in their timelessness, they themselves are changing, growing, falling, shedding their leaves. Sevan Roshi once assigned me a practice. He asked he asked me to walk from my house at the time for 10 minutes in any direction that I wanted to. 
and he said to time it. And once that 10 minutes were up, I was to find the closest tree. And from there, I was to walk up to it, to say hello, out loud, he said, and to ask it to teach me. And I remember doing this and feeling, you know, pretty self-conscious about it. (laughs) But I think that that was part of the lesson. And then I suppose I was supposed to visit that tree several times per week for a year. And at the end of that year to see what I've learned. So I did. I spent a year with that tree. What did I learn? Well, I'm not going to say. But I do recommend that you do it for yourself. To touch into this timeless and yet dynamic light force that is always changing. And of course, much of that change goes undetected underneath the soil. As I spoke about a couple of years ago, um, about these networks of microorganisms that are shared by trees that go unseen. And I learned that even saplings that are totally shaded and unable to synthesize their own food survive because other trees, including their parent trees, pump sugar to all those smaller ones. Sometimes when I come back from Doksan and see everyone sitting in the zendo here, I see this forest of tall, strong individual trees shooting up from their cushions and chairs, silent, dignified. And yet underneath, how much movement is happening, of course. How many worlds are being created and destroyed all within each individual body-mind So, the oak tree in the garden, if we're not careful, as always, we can come to believe that Joshu was using the tree as a metaphor, a stand-in for something. But as I often say, these koans are not practice instructions. They aren't teaching stories, and they certainly aren't metaphors. Joshu is, as Yamada Ryon Roshi often says, presenting the fact itself. In the longer version of this dialogue between this monk and Joshu, the monk misunderstands Joshu's response and retorts, Master, please don't teach me using outside objects. And Joshu says, I'm not teaching you using outside objects. The monk said then, well, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? And Joshu says, the oak tree in the garden. It isn't a metaphor or a teaching lesson or an outside object. 
But we also have to be careful, lest we think that this tree is inside of us, or a part of us. The oak tree is itself the whole reality. There's nothing outside of that oak tree, or this stick, or this cup. If you think they're one, you're mistaken. If you think Joshu is being clever or up to something, you're also mistaken. If you think he had any intention at all other than this natural, unfolding compassion, you're mistaken. In fact, the only way to approach this koan, or any koan, our life koan, is, as Roshi says, said yesterday, with non-thinking, or before thinking. Each time we turn towards thinking, especially about ourselves, we miss it. And we get tired of going down that road of constant consideration, we are on the right path. So it says that this monk asked his question with all earnestness. That is the spirit of our practice. You know, whatever we are doing, we do it with earnestness. Like the oak tree growing, standing, eventually falling. Even if we are just a small, little scrub pine tree. Each tree, without exception, is complete in its earnest expression. And so I want to end today with a passage from a book called Throw Yourself into the House of Buddha that we've been studying on Tuesday nights. It's the transcribed talks of Harada Tongan Roshi. And he says this, There is a stone in front of my temple. Under the foundation of this stone, we had to put a thick layer of asphalt in an unplanned sudden repair. The year before, daffodils grew there in the soil, and they bloomed beautifully. If I had remembered, I would have transplanted them elsewhere. But in the rush, we forgot about them and their bulbs were buried under the thick asphalt. Then in the springtime, as I was passing by one day, I noticed a little light green sprout had broken through from under that asphalt that had even a strong blow from a hammer could barely budge. The delicate green sprout grew each day, becoming longer and longer, and then sending out a cute little leaf. One week, Two weeks, one month passed. Then from the stem, a flower emerged and beautifully bloomed. In the spring breeze, it gently waved. Every day, I went to greet that daffodil in deep reverence. Where did you get such great power from? Looking at that little flower, I couldn't help but cry. Where did you get such power? It is so straightforward 
the tips of its leaves peeping out as they first emerged from the asphalt, sort of shy but not giving into the weight of the heavy material above them, not giving in to any obstacle. They weren't saying, I came through this hard asphalt, I broke through, look at me. No notion of, ah, I hate this hard asphalt, and I sure would like to be someplace softer. This pretty little daffodil's effort, its power, this force of gentle sprouting, this noble strength, what is it? Just earnestly receiving all that there is to receive, just growing and not setting limits upon itself. We have to revere this one little daffodil shining in the sunshine. It's noble, truly noble, and selfless. So we'll stop here and recite the four vows. <laughs>